Today's episode of The Ship We Shay is recorded on Gadigal land. We acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to the latest episode of the podcast, The Shift with Shay. I'm Shay, the host of this show. As a warning, today's podcast discusses experiences with end-of-life support for patients. If any of the topics in today's podcast raise concerns for you, Nurse and Midwife Support is a 24-7 national support service. It provides confidential advice and referral for nurses and midwives. Your health is important, so please call 1-800-667-877 or visit nmsupport.org.au. Today I'm joined by fellow nurse, academic and nursing influencer Jess Stokes Parish. Jess is an ICU nurse and assistant professor at Bond University in Queensland, but some listeners might know Jess best for her profile on Instagram as a nurse educator and myth buster of medical misinformation. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jess. Great to have you. Thank you, Shay. It's great to be here. Awesome. Look, let's jump in. Uh, I'm really keen to hear about you. You have a pretty fascinating career. Um, Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into nursing to start with. Yes. Um, So as you know, I'm I'm now in Queensland, but I started off in New South Wales. Um, I did my undergrad nursing degree at the Uni of Newcastle, started off at the Arimba campus and then finished my final year in Newcastle itself. Um, and I always knew I wanted to do nursing as a young kid. I had a grandfather that had cancer and I remember having these vivid memories of kind of interactions with nurses and I came away thinking, well, I'm going to be like that nice nurse that, um, we worked with. I had no idea what that meant, um, but I had (laughs) it in, (laughs) had it in my head that I would be a nurse and, um, and I stuck with it and went through and did my nursing. And um, and then funnily enough, my first nursing job was in cancer nursing. Mm. And so was it a deliberate decision to go and kind of pursue oncology or did you just end up there on like a new grad rotation or how did that happen? Um, so I didn't get a new grad. And so mm-hmm. I kind of went through the process then of trying to work out where am I going to work and what am I going to do? You know, is my my career over. I didn't get a new grad. Um, you know, newsflash, you won't, your career won't be over if you don't get a new grad. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of applied for a job and there was a two-year contract and I was like, well, yeah, I'm up for anything. Let's try it out. And, um, and that's how I got into it. Yeah, nice. And so what was it like? You know, I'd imagine it would be pretty interesting experience to head into oncology as your first um, kind of exposure to the nursing profession. Um, So what did you learn? What did you see? What did you think? Um, It was pretty shocking. Um, So prior to working in oncology, I did have an assistant in nursing role um, at a smaller hospital. And so I worked in like coronary care and emergency and, and a medical ward, but I didn't really have much exposure to cancer and death. Um, Mm -hmm. and I remember like, you know, when people die your first times you remember so vividly Mm. and I I can still remember like my first ever death when I was working as an AIN. And then on like my second day of my oncology job, somebody died after I rolled them over and, Mm. you know, as a, I was quite young, so I only started, um, I started my first year of nursing 
and I just turned 19. Um, so I was really young, really naive, and it was a big shock. Like the heaviness of cancer nursing, I was not prepared for it at all. And I think my how young I was, my lack of life experience, and also, you know, as a new nurse, you don't really have the skills for dealing with that kind of stuff yet. So mm. it was pretty heavy. Um, and for some mm. reason, I got placed in the palliative care area of the oncology ward quite a lot. And um, mm. it was really heavy, but I, I learned a lot and it was a real privilege. And I don't think I understood that then, mm. how much mm. of how much of a privilege it is to be with people in their final moments and to be like, it's so, it's such an intimate thing to be there with family. And yeah, it's, it's really stuck with me. Mm. And um, I'm not, you know, this might sound a bit sombre, so uh, I'm not trying to be perverse, but has it really influenced your perspective on death, having had those experiences, particularly as a young nurse, probably in your formative years of your nursing career? Mm. Yeah, very much so. I think initially I became quite hardened to it um, and and even now, like I'll, I'll talk. So I still work clinically um, in ICU and I I think now that I'm older, it affects me more. Um, and initially I just, I kind of just got really hard about it and, and everything was kind of black and white and, and you kind of build those fortresses around yourself mm. to kind of cope with this onslaught of other people's emotion and then your emotion with it. Mm. Um, so I think it has really shaped it. I, I'd like to think that I'm a lot better now at at processing it and that I let myself sit with that heaviness and that mm. um, uh, I had a, a series of deaths last year and um, within ICU and I just I remember coming home and just being like this is just like heartbreaking stuff and and people are so alone you know yeah. and and we are here um, my husband works in finance and so I often come home and if I've had a really rough shift, uh, he's just like, I have no idea what you are experience, like what you see. And I'm like, no, sometimes I don't really appreciate what I see. And I, I don't know that you can, mm. I don't know. And sometimes you don't want to express to people no. the things that you see. <laughs> no, exactly. And I, I do yeah. remember, um, at the, when I was 19, 20, I was still living at home with my parents and I was really struggling with going into a ward and seeing all this heavy stuff and then having to come home and like socialise and interact with mm. other people. And I remember I'd get home after an Arvo shift at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock and I'd just watch TV till 1am just to try and help unwind. And I remember my parents and my siblings being like, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you talking with us? Why don't you, why do you just go to your, I'm like, I don't, I don't think I realised how much it is to carry and that you actually need that space to not talk about it. And that I don't yeah. know that people can really cope with hearing that kind of, those kind of yeah. stories either. Yeah, it's kind of protective for others around you sometimes too, which I think talks to the burden um, that we carry at times as well because you do have to be able to kind of digest it and yep. process it. Um, yep. And I think, you know, I'd love to hear what your 
kind of experiences were of those nursing friendships with your colleagues because I you know in my experience they become so valuable for those reasons you know so much you can say or the things that are even unsaid that you all just understand from one another but it's hard to have that same experience with family and friends because you kind of don't want to expose them to all of what you've seen and you know working it through yeah totally and and I just don't I, I know I've kind of talked about this online um, before, how you just you don't feel as understood anyway mm-hmm. as you do mm-hmm. from your health professional colleagues. Um, I think when I was younger I didn't quite understand the role of um, peers and how important that was to help with debriefing. Um, and I think that was it's a personality thing too. I'm quite an independent person. I've, mm-hmm. you know, always been fine type thing Um, but as I've progressed through my career I certainly you know when you meet up with colleagues that work in this space and you just kind of go oh my gosh this happened and they're like oh that like that sucks and just kind of being able to trade those stories knowing that one they're not going to take it anywhere else because it's not it's not a morbid story you know like that's the other thing of if you tell family and friends they're like oh my gosh that's like you know um, it becomes like the movie entertainment. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So definitely, like, there's definitely people that are, you just kind of go even in academic space. So a lot of the people that I work with still work clinically, and I know I can go to my boss and be like, "Oh, like I just had this shift, and it was just," and they're like, "Yeah, me too." And and you know, you can just have that conversation and know that you're understood. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, heavy stuff. Yeah, uh, what a way look, to let's start. Take a, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think it's such an important part of what we deal with um, really in most aspects of nursing. Um, but, you know, there are some places like power care where there's just more of it. And, you know, I think it's remarkable to kind of talk to people who work in that space because they usually have this really kind of different outlook different perspective and it comes from exactly what you were saying like the privilege of being part of that work Mm. but you know I do think it's important that we talk about it uh, because you you kind of don't get all the good parts without some of the difficult parts too for sure yeah so let's talk about where you are now so Mm. you're now in Queensland and you've taken a bit of a hop on over to ICU so what's the what's how did that all happen take us through that um well very much related to the heaviness of palliative care um Mm. I I was quite burnt out even only two years in and and I know Mm. that many new grads feel that way you know that sudden shift um I really love numbers and kind of problem solving and so for me ICU seemed to tick all of those boxes of kind of the balancing, the autonomy of practice um, and working with a really tight-knit team. Um, So I was very fortunate that I was able to get a job in the ICU where I'd started at the same hospital and they had like an in-house transition program Um, and it was fabulous. It was a real shock initially. Um, You know, ICU has a very particular type of nurse um, Mm. and people have their way of doing things and 
I definitely struggled with trying to make sure I was remaining within my scope of practice and also pleasing these senior nurses that had a certain way that they like to do things, but they're all different. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually have one of my um, strongest memories is on a night shift. um, I was sitting there at my desk, like doing all my notes and, and looking at all my hourly observations. And one of the really senior RNs who'd been in the same unit for years and years and years, and like she was a queen, you know, uh, she came in and she reorganised my bed bay because it wasn't to her liking. And I remember just looking going, mm, don't don't say anything, just just don't, don't <laughs> worry about it, don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> it reminds me of, um, you know, the meme that goes around about the comparison with the ICU nurse and the ED nurse. Yeah, the electrical cords. <laughs> the electrical cords, that's right. So, you know, that kind of beautiful pristine ordered every cable has got a tag and it's all just laying down lovely and then the mess that the ED nurse brings up uh, and that certainly resonates for me yeah yeah totally (laughs) it was just one of those moments I was just like oh yep yeah not worth not worth fighting this battle like (laughs) okay my bed bay is not up to standard I hope she um, recovered or that you learned very quickly. Yeah, she retired. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, so so that was what got me into ICU. And then um, I'd always had a passion for education and I knew that I loved education and kind of learning myself and I I loved um, the opportunities that learning had. And so I started kind of looking into ways that I could get into more teaching um, and I got a job kind of supporting a, a simulation centre at one of the universities and so that was kind of my first foot in the door to an educational space um, which was in itself a huge adjustment because academia and education is not task focused and mm. nursing is very task focused mm. Uh, so I really struggled with that transition, but that's kind of what started me then on this journey of education. Yeah, nice. And so I get the impression you're loving ICU. How long have you been there and, you know, what's your, what's your experience been? What what do you love about it? Ooh, um, yeah, so I think 12 or 13 years I've been working in ICU. Um, yeah, again, I love the problem solving. I love the kind of um, the routine and the structure of of a shift, but also that you never not quite know what's going to happen. Um, it's very team based. There's a lot of kind of banter between people, and so I loved I've loved that. And so yeah, so I work one day a week in an ICU, and um, and I'm always learning. It always gives me that opportunity to learn, and it also gives me that opportunity to make sure that I don't lose touch with. The, the hard stuff of nursing, um, the shifts, yeah. the the rostering, the the skill mix issues, all of the kind of stuff that I don't want to lose sight of that in my nice office uh, job. And um, yeah, I just, I really value it and it keeps me humble. So it's good. Yeah, nice. So take us to your office job. What are you doing? Yeah, so um, I'm an assistant professor in medicine, which is basically like a senior lecturer. Um, 
and I teach into the medicine program here. I'm actually a, one of the course coordinators for a subject. And so my job kind of includes a whole range of different things, whether from teaching to marking, designing curriculum. Um, and I also have a lot to do with simulation-based education methodologies. So we use a lot of actors or simulated participants is what we kind of the formal name. So I'm mm-hmm. the... I'm the manager and the lead of a a big pool of staff that work in that role. So we do lots of training and upskilling, and that's all about um, creating opportunities for authentic learning. Uh, Mm. So, you know, you would know that many of many nursing programs use mannequins. Uh, Mm. We don't use mannequins here unless it's for part task kind of, you know, you've got to practice cannulation or something like that. We use real people because we want that kind of authenticity and human connectedness that you can't get from a mannequin. Mm. And so is this medical students or nursing students? Yeah, so it's medical students. Um, Okay. Yeah, so that... That was kind of how I found my way into education. There's actually a lot of nurses that work in medical education. Mm. Uh, We're quite sought after because we're very organised and we make Mm. things happen. Uh, So I've got a number of nursing colleagues here that work with me and, um, yeah, it's great. I love it. And what do you see um, different about medical students than you see about nurses? You know, those nursing students you might have had when you've been out kind of working clinically or just nurses generally, like are there any observations that you can share that you sort of see as those different sort of training cohorts? Yeah, they, they are very different. Um, if you think about medicine, it's extremely competitive to get into. So mm. you you do get students that are extreme high achievers. They really don't um, do well with failure. Um, and there's a I guess, a real um, sense of pursuing achievement and, and high distinctions and, and that kind of thing. Um, I would not, I, I did teach uh, in the nursing program for a few years and, yeah, there was a big difference in like in motivation and kind of mm. engagement in learning. Um, yeah, a lot of similarities as well. Like no one, like, yeah. no one likes the early classes doesn't matter (laughs) doesn't matter what you do no one wants that eight o'clock start um but given we all end up as shift workers uh, at least at some point that's kind of interesting isn't it it's super interesting it's actually one of our biggest challenges is like they're about to go on placement and start their shifts at 7 a.m and you're like you can't complain about starting at nine o'clock like (laughs) um yeah yeah so really it's been very interesting as a nurse working in a um a medical program like I I went in with my own biases about how I thought doctors would perceive me as a nurse Mm -hmm. um and I kind of went in and I was thinking oh they're going to see me as like I'm I'm here as their hand person or, and mm. and that is like, you have a, a very small handful that perceive you that way. Um, but the majority were like, oh my gosh, a nurse, that means everything will be sorted. Um, mm. And like, there's a real positive view of, of nurses and, and the value that they bring to the team. And so it really um, has challenged me to unpack a lot of my own biases and and the way that I think about myself as a nurse and Mm. how I think that my peers think about me as a nurse. And so it's fascinating. 
And do you think that's like a bit generational or something unique to the culture of the kind of uni that you're at or? No, it's it's because I've worked at a couple of um, medical programs and it's it's quite universal and doesn't yeah. seem to be generational either. Like there okay. is, there is the, you know, the couple that think that nurses are the handmaidens. Um, yeah. But that's definitely not the dominant um, prevailing thought. Yeah, nice. Well, that mm. must be very refreshing once you had that kind of penny drop moment. Yeah. Yeah, and actually so much more or like um, doctors are less concerned about rules. So there's, there's a <laughs> Is lot that a good thing? Or? <laughs> uh, it can go both ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot more freedom and autonomy, yeah. Yeah, nice. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, let's change it up again. I think you have a really unique kind of perspective on the nursing profession, um, purely from kind of part of your career, which is about your work in social media. Uh, can you tell us a bit about kind of how you became a nurse on social media and mm. what that even means? Because mm. this is sort of a new phenomenon to some degree. Like I know there's a few more nurses out there these days, but it feels like there's been a bit of an explosion in the last couple of years. Um, so there's a bunch of, I think, nurses and midwives who I talk to who still aren't even really across what nurses are doing on social media. So I'd mm. love to just get a sense from you about what you're doing and how you started. Yeah, so um, for those of you that I guess aren't familiar with my work on social media, so I have quite, I have a smallish Instagram account Um it's not big by any means. I'm not really an influencer. Um, but uh, so I guess what I try to do on social media as a nurse is two things. One, to elevate the profile of nurses in the media. And I'll come back to that. Uh, but the other part is to really use the role of the nurse as a way to engage with the public and to build trust and to have an opportunity there. So when I got started, the reason why I got started was because I was seeing that there was, there was a lot of traditional nurse influences, particularly in the American space, lots of modelling scrubs and that kind of thing. Um, and I was like, I've seen in the media lots of doctors or other scientists be contacted as spokespeople to talk about health issues. And I've never seen a nurse Apart, apart from if there's a union issue and, and mm -hmm. you know, I was like, that's really bizarre to me. Like why, you know, nurses are the perfect kind of person to be interpreting information, sharing information, the public trusts us um, and we are often interpreting jargon and medical jargon. So I was like, what's that about? And so I, I went around and trying to work out, are there any nurses that are online? And there wasn't. So I was like, I think I'll have to try this. Um, so I just kind of started, I, I was really, as a mum, as a parent, I was seeing lots of common myths. And at the time I was still working in ICU, an ICU that was a toxicology ICU. And so I was seeing like this trend of low tox and how, you know, um, you need to have low tox in your life. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like the science doesn't really support that. And so I started, yeah, myth busting a little bit, but more from an approach of if we understand the reasons why, then 
hopefully people will be a little bit better educated on it. So as time's gone on, I, I, I definitely realised that it was a niche for me and a lot of my focus has been on helping people to assess the information that they see online. So instead of me always giving them the information, this is wrong, this is right, I developed a framework to help people go through the information themselves to make a judgment and to help with, I guess, um, literacy in that way. Mm. And so how have you been received online? Are people kind of grateful for, you know, having the tools to be able to interpret information? Do you have people who are saying, you know, not hearing you, I'm, I'm, I'm down the conspiracy pathway, this is what I believe? Or, you know, are you flipping people and, and pointing out the misinformation and they can, they're kind of grateful for that? Yeah, like um, so a bit of a mix. So yeah. I've my kind of focus has been about building trust. So it's and trust is built through relationships and relatability. So I spent a lot of time during the pandemic breaking down you know, what's a, the nasal swab test, for example, and what's it made of? Or yeah. um, these are the vaccines that are being developed. What's the difference between, um, you know, this mRNA-type vaccine and the traditional one? What What's different about it and what might be your concerns and how can we allay your concerns? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I had people messaging me saying I had chosen not to vaccinate my children at all during their childhood. But now Mm -hmm. that I've heard you talking about how vaccines are designed and your conversations about the COVID one, my children are now on a catch-up schedule to get them completely Ah. vaccinated. Um, So that was really common. I definitely had people harass me. Yeah, there's always people that harass you online, unfortunately. Um, Mm. And there's some people that are like, you know, I don't like your approach or, but generally um, it's really positive. And, you know, for me, the biggest marker of success is when your peers come to you and say, I like what you're doing. I think you've got a really good approach. And so um, I do get that from, from quite a lot of peers. And so for me, that's, you know, a really, a really big tick of approval, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah, awesome. And what do you do with the sort of negative um, feedback? Are you able to just kind of block it out? Does it does it kind of you know interrupt your flow? How are you managing with that? Um, it depends. Some people who harass you for a long period of time, you just end up blocking them, and you know they're yeah. not worth your time. There's other people that I think they believe that. Um, you should listen to their information because they're so passionate about it. And look, you know, people are often have genuine reasons why they do or don't like something. And so if we've got Mm. a rapport, then I've got no issue with it. But if they're just kind of harassing, then I just ignore them and block them. Mm. Don't, don't feed the trolls is the, Mm. is the line. Mm. It's a whole other um, kind of world of, uh, I want to say like workplace dynamics. I don't know if that's mm. the right language, but, you know, like you kind of know how to engage with the patients in the hospital that are lovely, the ones that you might need to be a little yeah. weary of. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a similar sort of set of um, analysis and decisions that you kind of have to make just in this different context. Yeah, totally. And I, I've got it quite clear on my page. Like I have a rules of engagement as one of my first posts and that's drawn from my educational experience of, um, like I say to my students, these are the rules of engagement with our learning activity today. If you are disrespectful, if you're this, that, then you're out. 
Um, And so I just approach it the same and just go, Mm -hmm. you know, you've overstepped that boundary. You don't deserve my time. And that's the thing, like no one ever deserves your time. Yeah. Like Good advice. Yeah. So it feels like uh, particularly the younger generations of nurses and midwives are much more open to sharing their experiences on social media. Mm. Have you got any kind of words of wisdom? Uh, we know that, you know, obviously our professions are regulated pretty strongly and mm. um, the benefits of social media, I think, also need to be balanced with some of the risks. And um, I'd love to hear your perspective around how people might be able to kind of navigate this space safely. Yeah, for sure. And um, I'm I'm such a big advocate for social media and I do think it's provided us with so much. It's provided us with a significant voice. Um, but as you said, it comes with risk too. And this is something that I teach with our med students here and actually all mm. of our health profession students now. So um, what I tell them is that there's five principles that you need to think about outside of the legalities. So the legalities are one thing that you, you need to know the laws um, because there are quite a few, but um, there's kind of five other areas that I think if you're going to post, think about that. So the first two are privacy and confidentiality. So the ones that we we kind of know, I think are quite obvious to people. What's not obvious to people is how identifiable their information might be. Um, So there was a study done in uh, 2019 where an an analysis of tweets was done and it was this trend called share a story in one tweet. So healthcare providers were sharing a story in one tweet of a clinical interaction that they had had. They weren't including names, um, but they were including things like the um, gender of the patient, the condition and their age. They didn't say where they were. But when they went through the data, they actually found that 50% of the tweets were identifiable by the patient themselves. And that was because, you know, conditions are not always as popular as, uh, sorry, yeah, they're not as common as you think. So Mm. some people have very rare conditions that it's obvious who it is. And also um, most health practitioners identify where they work in some way without realising it. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure you guys probably see this within the union a little bit more. But, um, you know, if you say you're on the Gold Coast, for example, and you work at an ICU, it's pretty easy to find which ICU that I work in. And so yeah. if I share a reflection at the end of my shift, then somebody can put two and two together and work out what's gone on. Mm. So um, that one is always like people are like, no, no, I'm not sharing names. I'm not sharing a photo of the patient. No, we know that and we know that people are really comfortable with that. Um, it's actually the hidden things. Yeah, joining the dots. Yeah, that's right. And it happens It happens so much more than people realise. Um, so that's the first two. The third one is professional boundaries. So if you are online, how are you going to navigate it if somebody that you've cared for slides into your DMs? What are you going to do mm. Um, you wouldn't ordinarily have an interaction with them outside of a social media setting. You might see them in the street and you might say, oh, hello, but that's about it. So, you know, being proactive to think about what are the boundaries that you're going to have and remembering that um, as a health professional, you hold a position of power, whether you like it or not. Um, We hold positions of power as nurses and so we can sometimes... um, 
take advantage of that power in ways that we don't realize, whether it's through selling products or um, being affiliated with certain organizations, we can inadvertently um, convince people to, to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. Mm. Um, the other issue is reputation. Um, so reputation is something that people don't always think about. So how will your profile online influence not only your personal reputation, but also your employer's reputation and then your profession's reputation? So what you do online, whatever it is, you know, firstly, you've got your own risk of your own professional um, identity that you want to protect that. You want to protect your registration. You don't want people to come online and go, oh, I'm about to employ that person, but I see that they debrief or they're constantly on TikTok talking about how their shift went. Um, you might not be saying anything wrong, but how does it impact your reputation as a whole? And then um, you know, could you be bringing the nursing reputation into a position of ill repute? Um, mm. And there, you know, there's a there is a lot of debate about where does the role of the nurse end and your personal life begin? Like, where's the blur? You know, there's a lot of blurred lines. Um, but mm. the reality is, if you are online as a nurse, you and you have that in your bio or you talk frequently that you're a nurse online, then you are representing yourself as the nurse. Mm. Those are really good tips. And, uh, you know, I think from the union perspective, we certainly represent lots of members who seek our support um, because of something, some interaction that they've had online that's caused some whether it's offence or issue um, mm. for them. Uh, and, yes, it's really interesting, I think, to watch the broader debate because we know that um, social media is moving much faster than legislation yes. or even than community expectations at times. And so there is often a disconnect between what can be done versus what regulators think should be done. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really, it's, it's interesting. It'd be interesting to see where this goes into the future as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and it, it is a really hard space. And I think the reality is that most organizations are risk averse. Um, mm. you know, most health organizations are going to take a, a more conservative approach because their number one kind of priority is their organization's reputation. Mm, absolutely. So back to you. What's your plan for social media going forward? Where do you want to sort of take it and what do you see your role being into the future as uh, whether you want to call it an influencer or not, but <laughs> using that platform, what are, yeah. you, what are you hoping to do? Um, I think there's two things. So one of the primary ones is to continue with the critical appraisal side of things, so how to look at information and appraise that and that's both to a nursing audience and to a public audience. I think um, as nurses, we can always upskill on our ability to read literature or to check the veracity of information that we're reading. Um, so that's one of the big areas that I will keep going um, and I'll keep focusing on that. And then the second one is um, really focusing on the health professionals and helping them with how they communicate about health and science online. Not only those ethics side of things, but also there's a lot of evidence about how we can communicate 
with best evidence. And so that's something that um, in the last few years I've um, like I'm doing a degree to look at science communication and um, I'm really excited to see how we as nurses and as other health professionals can really stand out in our communication online. Awesome. That sounds fantastic and completely fascinating. Um, and I will be keenly watching. I'm going to go and um, follow you on Instagram <laughs> so I can get across it. Uh, we touched a little earlier about how you didn't get a new grad placement and we have a bunch of nurses and potentially midwives who are looking for where they're going to be working next year, may have applied for some programs, may not get one. Have you got any tips for them um, and any learnings that you can share from a, a you know pretty varied um, career uh, that didn't necessarily start in a traditional way? Yeah, so I guess my first message is it's okay. You you will still have a, a good career ahead of you um, and to know that there are many others that will be in the same boat because there's not enough new grad programs for everyone. So my tips would be start looking for any job that's available that's within your region of travel. Um, I think... I just put myself out there and just applied for as many as I could. It may mean that you may not be doing what you really want to be doing, but it doesn't mean you have to stay at that place that you've gotten the contract in. Um, but I would recommend try get your foot in the door somewhere so that when you do get to that point that you can apply for a position that you really want, you've still got experience. Um the other thing I guess is just not to get too disheartened, keep keep contacting people, keep putting your, your feelers out there to find who's around you, find other peers that are in the same boat um, and make sure that you do have some good support networks around you. The other thing is to consider going rural. Um, that will often get you a new grad placement even after the new grads have been released. So you could always call up the location that a new grad um, program is at and ask them if anyone's dropped out because some people drop out the week before it's meant to start. So don't give up. Keep keep making those calls. Great advice. And, you know, we're at a time where we need every last nurse and midwife so you will get a job somewhere and it might mean that you go and actually study um, and start, you know, in a specialty that you've never even given consideration to. Uh, and I don't know about you, Jess, but I think, you know, I look back and I would never have considered that I would end up in a job like this. Um, mm. And it's literally just trying something and trying something else. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I think nursing can kind of lead you into a whole range of weird and wonderful places um, if you're prepared to just try. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, good tips. Thank you. We'll be right back after a quick word about the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's continuing professional education program. Did you know the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association has a new online CPD portal? With over 200 free online CPD courses across a wide range of nursing and midwifery topics, plus the ability to track your learning, it's definitely worth checking out. If you're a New South Wales NMA member, just log in to the member portal, Member Central, to access this program. And if you're not yet a member, make sure you join today. So, you know, when you're in the, the thick of it uh, and you're really experiencing some of those um, challenging shifts, the heaviness, I think, of what you're dealing with can be pretty troubling at times. 
is there any advice that you've got for people about how they might seek support um, and, you know, really look for um, ways to, I suppose, engage in services or, or find ways to debrief so that they can really think about um, some of those coping strategies that they might want to try and implement? Yeah, that's a really good question, Shane. I don't know what your experience is, but certainly when I first started nursing, those kinds of services weren't as prominently shared. Like Mm, I feel like we've maybe because of the pandemic, maybe because the ongoing issues around burnout, um, I don't know that those same, you know, there's employee counselling that's available, but it's not always front of mind. Um, And it's great now that there's, phone services like nursing midwifery support um but I I think I would like to see I think a bigger focus on support services um I wonder if that traditionalism of well back in my day it was we just soldier on there's a lot of that I think that still is there and and I think I would encourage young nurses in particular and I think looking back I think I would have tried to have more like started counselling support earlier and really thought about that. I mean, supervision services, seeing your nurse unit manager or other managers, um, but I think we do need to see a little bit of a shift in normalising seeking help for this kind of stuff that we perceive to be bread and butter. Yeah, look, I'd completely agree. I think um, COVID has taught us a lot Mm. and it certainly taught us a lot about well-being, like workforce well-being. And I think we're in this strange transition at the moment where there's still a lot of emphasis being put on like the individual resilience of a nurse Mm. or midwife rather than system reform. Um, And I think we are seeing the emergence of more services like nursing and midwife midwife support, uh, which are run by nurses and midwives Mm. for nurses and midwives, which are great. Um, But really thinking about sort of um, the industries where we have got kind of high risk of burnout, high risk of psychosocial injury. um, And, you know, what I think the union in particular talks about a lot is like the systems and structures that should be implemented um, in a much more preventative way um, that focus around things like hot and cold debrief and training for managers and, you know, really building a resilient system rather than telling nurses and midwives that they should be more resilient because the nature of the work that I think we're all doing is so complex and does really take so much of your own kind of personal emotional strain at times and so um, understanding that and helping people to navigate that I think is where we need to get to into the future. Yeah and I'm not sure Shay um, some of the research that I did during COVID was around the angels and heroes narrative Mm. Um, and that was a lot of what we found was that nurses were really sick of being referred to as angels and heroes because it portrays them in this um, particular light, not only a gendered light of either being, you know, this feminine angel that kind of does what they're told, um, but also it, it again, it, it shifts that burden to the individual as opposed to the system and we ignore mm. things like rostering appropriately, ensuring that people are getting enough sleep, people are eating properly, like all of these kind of big picture things I think Um, it would be great to see um, the needle shift on. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. Been fascinating chatting with you, Jess. 
Oh, thanks for having me. It was great to chat. I'm always keen to be involved and I hope that people find inspiration um, for their own journey in some of it and to know that there's space for everyone in our nursing careers and it's not always the journey that you think. Mm, So true. Couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of The Shift with Shay. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jess and I look forward to being able to share more stories with you from the world of nursing and midwifery. A reminder, if any of the topics in today's podcast have raised any concerns for you, Nurse and Midwife Support is a 24-7 national support service. It provides confidential advice and referral for nurses and midwives. Please get in touch with them on one 800 or visit nmsupport.org.au. Please be sure to subscribe to The Shift with Shay wherever you get your podcast from and leave us a review. It helps others to find the podcast. If you've got a story to share with us, please get in touch. Let us know by email by getting in touch at theshiftpodcast at nswnma.asn.au.